Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. So glad to have you with us today because we are in for a real treat. As far as I know, the evidence for regional anesthesia in the acute care setting by operators other than anesthesiologists has never been examined all at once. So this is going to be exciting. And even more exciting is the guest that I have with us today. If you don't know him, you probably should, but I am very happy to welcome my friend Mike Stone to the podcast. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. As we examine these articles, I noticed that a lot of them have your name on them, Mike. Have you done some research in this field? Uh, research might be doing it too kindly. <laughs> it's an area of interest that I've explored uh, quite a bit over the years. Um, but I think as we'll discover um, in terms of levels of evidence, maybe not the highest quality research. But but yeah, I've, uh, I've been digging into regional anesthesia for a while. Well, I think that's quite modest. Mike is certainly one of the gurus of regional and has pioneered it for emergency medicine. He is pretty much an international superstar on the topic, so I'm really grateful that he could be here now to discuss the evidence of regional with us. Now, let me give you a little bit of background here, because examining the evidence here, you have to think about in a different way than a lot of the other articles that we're looking at. Because this has been done for a long time by anesthesiologists in the operative setting and even perioperative setting. So a lot of what we've started to do in the emergency room or the ICUs or other even primary care settings is that we're extrapolating their research and their evidence into our fields. And the way that this has come into popularity is because ultrasound has made this so much safer that people who are not originally trained in regional can now do a lot of different blocks in a safe manner by using ultrasound to avoid the danger zones. One thing that we can talk about is how much evidence we actually need in our setting. Are there a lot of differences in an emergency provider doing a block compared to an anesthesiologist doing a block preoperatively? Do you have any thoughts on that, Mike? Yeah, I mean, ultrasound, you know, back in, uh, I think probably 2003, 2004, we started um, experimenting with regional in the emergency department um, back at Highland Hospital in Oakland. And um, definitely a a shout out to all of the the crew that was involved back in that day. So Dan Price, Arun Nagdev, uh, Ralph Wong, um, and myself were really um, sort of um, just dipping our toes into this. And the arrival of ultrasound lets you see nerves and see fluid around nerves and track your needle towards the nerve and avoid complications like arterial puncture or pneumothorax, depending on what kind of block you're doing. And, um, this is, it it was a brand new thing because we really, um, prior to that you were using anatomic landmarks and nerve stimulators, which is something that most emergency docs never got trained in. So all of a sudden you've got a whole new scope of techniques you can use to make people more comfortable and alleviate pain for procedures or for just painful conditions. Um, And yeah, we're extrapolating from the anesthesia literature. And I think that there are some pitfalls there. I think that, um, you know, uh, making sure that you're doing the block safely is something that 
most anesthesiologists kind of take for granted as they're they're trained in nerve stimulator and and anatomic uh, sort of quote unquote blind techniques. Um, and for us, we just figured, well, you know, we're going to watch where the anesthesia goes. So what could really go wrong? Um, and uh, th- things can still go wrong. And safety is uh, something that I think was underestimated when we first got going. Um, and then you know, technique is, uh, is different among providers. I'm, I'm an emergency doc and, and I'm sort of, you know, I'm just as uh, specialty proud of our ability to intubate patients as anybody else. But I think if you're going to look at it from a, a real, you know, analytic research perspective, um, and an evidence-based view, you know, an anesthesiologist is intubating, you know, 10 X, 15 X times patients than we are in our careers. Right. So can you extrapolate all of the anesthesia airway literature into the emergency department? You may be able to, but I don't think we'll really know. Um, and I think ultimately from a regional perspective, it's the same thing. If somebody's doing 10 blocks a day as part of their, you know, perioperative pain management for ortho, and we're doing, you know, five or 10 blocks a month, we're just going to have a different level of expertise um, just by virtue of just drilling that same repetitive motion. So I think take it with a grain of salt. I don't think that, um, you know, an an anesthesia provider who doesn't do regional as a real focus, um, you know, most anesthesiology residencies, you need to do about 40 non-neuraxial blocks. So things not like epidurals or spinals, but things like peripheral nerve blocks, what we're talking about today. You need to do 40 over your residency. So to gain that level of competency as an emergency doc really isn't that challenging. I think the point is that you just need to know your skill set and know that these blocks take practice. You can't just watch a YouTube video and then expect to have 100% success right off the bat without any complications. So just read up on it, see a few. Ideally, you can either shadow your colleagues or someone else who knows what they're doing first and see how these things work before you get started in this. So a couple other disclaimers for this podcast. We're not going to cover how to do each of these blocks. That would take way too long. And we're also not calling this a systematic review. We did go through a lot of the literature here and look for the best studies, the most recent studies, and particularly studies that were done in a typical point-of-care fashion by the treating provider or specifically if there was non-anesthesiologist literature for the emergency department or other settings. But we this is not extensive to the point where we didn't miss anything. So if you find other studies or you know of other studies, feel free to shoot us a message and we can update the resources that we have here. But we're just going to look at the main papers for each of these topics. Before we do that, Mike, can you just give us briefly some general tips on when someone is performing regional anesthesia with ultrasound guidance? Are there things that people need to know? Do they need to know what type of needles or anesthetics or, you know, how they document these things? Probably first to talk about is um, is safety and, and sort of who you shouldn't be doing these blocks in. So people who are um, encephalopathic and can't really uh, tell you if they're having pain or paresthesia while you're doing the block are, are generally poor candidates for um, for nerve blocks. You know, you, you, you want to get around the nerve, but you don't want to be damaging the nerve. And if you're, you know, spearing a nerve with a needle and you've got an intoxicated patient who can't report a paresthesia, that's, that's a potential um, to really increase your risk of a complication. So um, poor mental status or encephalopathy, um, 
existing nerve injury or um, or deficit uh, is is a relative contraindication to a block. You know, you'll uh, obviously allergy to local anesthetics, um, and uh, and then um, lastly, sort of this this specter of compartment syndrome. Um, you know, there's people who are really into regional will argue that compart that there's never really been cases of missed compartment syndrome due to blocks, and it's more of a, a theoretical concern. Um, the reality is that there's uh, I, I have yet to meet a orthopedic surgeon or a general surgeon who would want you doing regional anesthesia in a patient who you think could be at risk for compartment syndrome. And those are our colleagues who are going to be caring for these patients as they're in hospital. So it just seems uh, like a bad idea intuitively. Yeah, I mean, if you had a high-energy tib-fib and, and you really didn't want to sedate that patient for some reason, there was an absolute contraindication to sedation, you could, and you needed to do a reduction, you could think about using a very short-acting anesthetic, um, something like uh, chloroprocaine that's going to be sort of on and off in 30 minutes. Um, but I've never had that clinical scenario come up, and, and I would just do my best to avoid regional in those cases. In terms of uh, uh, last thing for safety is, is really monitoring, um, and that's just having a cardiac monitor on to be able to look for signs of um, local anesthetic systemic toxicity and to be able to give medications to treat it if somebody were to develop an uh, anesthetic overdose. Um, my general practice, and this you know it's not evidence-based, there is no evidence around this, is um, blocks above the elbow or blocks above the knee. So anything sort of proximal to elbow or knee, um, I want to make sure I have an IV in. Um, and that the patient is monitored. Um, you know, I had a, a fun debate with an anesthesiologist once about this, and they said, well, they, they think that, uh, you know, IV and, and monitoring for every single block. And I, I finally got them to admit that for a digital block, they wouldn't put in an IV <laughs> or monitor a patient. Um, but they still felt like wrist blocks and things in the forearm and the lower leg, they would do it. And it's just a level of practice and comfort. And it sounds like um, they won that argument overall. <laughs> I think they probably did. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I saved my forearms and my, uh, my lower legs, uh, and ankles. So I, if it's, if it's proximal to those, I tend to put in an IV and put people on, uh, on a monitor. Um, knowing the, uh, the right anesthetic is critical and generally, um, short acting, you know, ultra short acting blocks. You can use something like chloroprocaine, which is, um, which is rarely used by, um, anesthesiologists for regional because it's so short acting. Um, but for us, it's really phenomenal for things like, shoulder dislocations or ankle reductions or things that are going to take just literally like a clunk and it's done. Um, and you just want to get them numb and then you can get the anesthetic to wear off and they're, they're doing well. Um, then you've got the sort of typical short acting anesthetics like lidocaine or, uh, mipivacaine. Um, and then you've got the longer acting anesthetics like bupivacaine or ropivacaine. Um, ropivacaine has a slightly safer, safer profile cardiovascularly than bupivacaine. So if you have ropey available in your, uh, department or your, or your, or central pharmacy, um, I'd recommend it. But at the same time, I'd say, you know, 80% of the long acting blocks done worldwide or more are done with bupivacaine. So not, don't be worried if you only have bupivacaine. Epinephrine in the blocks. Um, I generally use it for plain blocks. Um, so P-L-A-N-E blocks. So things like fascia iliaca uh, compartment blocks or, um, or erector spinae plain blocks. Um, there's really no hard evidence about using epi or not. It'll prolong your block. There's some concern about microvascular damage and, and vasospasm and 
increasing a risk of nerve injury if you're targeting a specific peripheral nerve with an epinephrine-containing solution. So generally, if I'm doing, say, uh, I don't know, a, a median nerve block in the forearm, I, I'll probably use bupivacaine without epinephrine, but if if I only have BP with epi, I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. And then knowing your right dosage, um, local anesthetic systemic toxicity, obviously dose related. Um, the two things you can do best to avoid that are one to make sure you're seeing anesthetic spread on the screen when you're injecting. So, you know, it's going into the tissue and not potentially into a vein or, or in, even worse into an artery. Um, and if you're not seeing spread of anesthetic while you're injecting in these small sort of three to five ML aliquots, you need to stop, find your needle tip reposition, make sure that you see spread. Um, and then having the right dose. I mean, if you don't give somebody a toxic dose, they can't really get toxicity. So, um, using, uh, I like the safe local app, but there's a couple of resources that we can link to, uh, in the, in the notes to the podcast that you can calculate the right dose based on weight for your patient and make sure that you're within safety range. Last thing would be, um, uh, a couple things, uh, the right needle. So um, I've definitely sort of changed perspective on this over the years, but I do believe that um, you should be using a blunt tipped or a short bevel uh, block needle whenever possible. Um, just lower risk of uh, laceration to the nerve. And um, and you do really get those, um, those tactile clicks and pops and loss of resistance when you're using a, a shorter bevel block needle or a blunt tip needle. So you kind of know when you've entered the fascial plane. Um, so blunt tip needle, if you have that available, if you have an echo tipped one that makes it easier to see all the better, but that's just a bonus. Um, and then coordinating protocols with your other departments and documenting appropriately. So, you know, we'll, we'll generally like write on the patient um, in, a, in a surgical marker or a Sharpie um, when a block was performed and make sure to put something in the chart. And, um, and you want to make sure you have good protocols with your involved departments. So, for example, one of my prior jobs, we coordinated with orthopedics about um, doing fascia iliaca blocks. And we decided what they wanted to see documented from a neurovascular perspective and a pre-block exam. And, um, and it was minimal. <laughs> they wanted to know that the patient could wiggle their toes and had a pulse. Um, and if that was okay, they were okay with a fascia iliaca block. But just getting it, um, you know, nothing derails a, a fledgling, you know, newborn regional anesthesia um, interest or program in your department, like getting written up or, uh, or, you know, negative feedback from a consultant that was upset that a block was done and they weren't informed. So I'm not saying you need everyone's permission and that we should tiptoe around it, but certainly, um, having a proactive team approach to getting everyone on board with regional in your institution will just smooth the process and avoid some hiccups. Yeah, we're not advocating for people to kind of go rogue and just start doing every block without telling anybody or without discussing it with anybody. Although it's generally safe, it's just good practice to involve anybody else that's going to be taking care of the patient. And it's it's generally just nice to have more uh, protocolized methods for a lot of these. Like, for example, like anyone with a hip fracture, what are going to be the indications and contraindications for them to get a fascia iliaca block? Or you can do that for really any sort of regional so that everyone's on the same page and it just ends up being a lot safer for you. And, and like you said, talking to other departments, even use your anesthesia colleagues. They're so helpful at teaching you, giving you pointers. And I know when I spoke to mine, they initially 
cringed to, at the thought that a, a quinky tip spinal needle might be used, so we quickly were able to get those tui tips, and now they're a lot more happy with that. And anesthesia is just a great resource. I mean, I you know, just hearkening back to our early days, I, I don't think we would have started with regional at all if it wasn't for the anesthesiologists we had at Highland at the time who were doing regional, but were really generally naive to ultrasound at the time. And it was sort of a, you know, you've got chocolate and I've got peanut butter. Um, and they, uh, <laughs> they, they, wanted, they wanted to learn more about ultrasound and we wanted to learn more about blocks. And we would go up. I mean, I, I remember being a you know senior resident and getting pages to the PACU from one of our anesthesiologists saying, "Hey, I've got a couple of blocks up here. Do you want to come up and and do some blocks with me?" And you know that if you can find a real sort of you know friend and champion in 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 your anesthesiology department, they have so much wisdom to share about doing these blocks. And um, I have a lot of mentors in anesthesia who've helped me over the years kind of develop my block practice. And if you go in with sort of an open collaborative team approach. I mean, I, I, I remember teaching one of the, the world experts in regional anesthesia about lung sliding and pneumothorax because they were already doing blocks, but they had just read about this back in like 20, 2005. And they were like, oh, I, you can look at this for in the OR for after you place a central line without having to look at peak pressures or get a chest x-ray or all these other things that don't happen. Um, and they were, you know, just that sharing of knowledge across specialties, everybody, patients benefit, everybody benefits from it. All right, without further ado, let's get into the main event here. And the way this is going to work is I'm going to say the name of a block. I'm going to pass it off to Stone to tell us how this has been used or can be used and anything else that may be an interesting tidbit about the block. And then we'll hit the evidence, see what we find for each one. Some of these are going to come pretty quick because there's not much out there. And maybe there's a few that we can discuss the, the evidence a little bit more. So starting off, we're going to go from the head to the toes. So occipital, the greater occipital nerve block. Mike, what's that all about? Greater occipital nerve gives you basically cutaneous innervation to the, the posterior aspect of the scalp. Um, you can do occipital nerve blocks for occipital neuralgia, for headaches, um, just generalized tension headaches, lacerations to the scalp. Um, I personally do this with a landmark based technique and have not used ultrasound for this. Um, and I would say I've probably done a grand total of 10 of these ever. Um, so not a really high frequency block for me, but, um, people who do them frequently tend to think they work real well. I feel very similarly. It's pretty easy to do the landmark based, and that may be the case with a lot of standard blocks that a lot of emergency physicians at least are, are trained in. You know, some some are just, you know, like an auricular block is another example where if you can do it with Landmark, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. When we looked at the evidence for this one, it's kind of like, hey, you can use ultrasound to do this thing that you can also do without ultrasound. And it may be useful to identify the artery, but uh, as far as evidence showing any benefit over traditional, there is none. There are case reports showing that it is feasible to use ultrasound for this. Pretty compressible artery and pretty small too. So even if you hit it, not a big deal. Stellate ganglion block. This is a cool one. Yeah, this is one you wouldn't do uh, blindly. Um, so this is a, um, a sympathetic block of um, all sorts of stuff like uh, the head, the neck, the heart, the arms. Um, it, really, the, the only indication I've seen for this in the emergency medicine setting is 
sort of a one in a million refractory ventricular storm. Uh, so a VF patient who you've just done everything, all of the electricity, all of the meds, and you can't get them out of VF. You've like even gone fancy and tried beta blockers and they're still in ventricular fibrillation. Um, it is, uh, it's used by anesthesiologists for some regional pain uh, management as well, but we're never doing this in the ER for that. I mean, this is seems like risky for that type of thing. Yeah, we're we're not going into the details of how to do it, but let's just say it's it's pretty darn close to the uh, carotid. <laughs> One uh, case pretty recently, I don't know if we're going to mention, but of a of a success case in an emergency setting um, with uh, with this block, and we uh, we covered this in some detail in an ultrasound podcast uh, maybe a year or so ago. That um, that you know just see it's it's a super sexy potential block, but uh, but not something I've. Pre- personally ever done. Yeah, I have the the links to the podcast as well as the article here. And my thought is, yeah, there's only a few case reports on this, but there was that one article that you guys mentioned in the ultrasound podcast in published in circulation in 2000 that showed there was 50 patients and there was an improved mortality in those that did get the sympathetic blockade which although only a subset of the blockade was actually a stellate ganglion block some of the blockade was also just getting some beta blockers but improved mortality over your standard acls like amio or other antiarrhythmics so aside from that article it's really just case reports showing that this can be done in the emergency department but as you alluded to it's kind of a hail mary at the end of the the line of nothing else working yeah, I mean, I think if you're in an institution where you're like about to call the code or you're about to activate eCPR, if you have ECMO in your institution and the ability to cannulate patients in arrest, um, this is something to try before you do either of those two. Um, in in my hospital where we have an active eCPR program, I'd probably be calling for ECMO and I'd try the block while I was waiting for the ECMO team to get there. Perfect. How about this superficial cervical plexus block? Okay, so uh, a block that I actually use. <laughs> um, so uh, superficial cervical plexus block is a block that gives you cutaneous anesthesia to the anterolateral neck, um, most of the ear other than the, uh, the very top of the ear and the tragus, um, and the skin overlying the clavicle. And in my experience, some bony analgesia for the clavicle as well. So there's a few things you can use this for. Uh, clavicle fractures, generally, if they're sort of mid-shaft clavicle, it works best in my experience. The, the far medial and lateral ones, I haven't had as much success. Um, and then if you're doing submandibular abscess or lacerations to the earlobe, I'm one of those people who's just cursed with that sort of ring block of the ear. It never works very well for me. So I like this instead for, uh, for earlobe lacerations. And then um, what's super slick and, uh, you know, a bunch of my buddies call this a gateway block for, uh, for people getting into, into anesthesia, into using regional, um, is for internal jugular central line placement. So, you know, if anybody's ever uh, numbed up the skin, uh, put in a central line, the patient's still pretty uncomfortable while you're dilating. And then you go to suture and you forget that you've haven't really anesthetized where the suture site was going to be. And then you have that like, you know, emotional crisis of conscience over do you just tell them it's going to stick for a second or do you numb it up um i know that's not familiar not familiar to anybody listening to this um the uh superficial cervical plexus you know i'll, I'll take a, a probe and and identify the landmarks using alcohol wipe and do the block with anywhere from five to ten mls of anesthetic and then go through the whole prep and drape and everything else process and by the time you're 
sticking the jugular and dilating and suturing, they're completely anesthetic. So, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a win for providers and patients. Um, super safe, uh, very superficial block as the name implies, but I mean, typically, you know, three to six millimeters under the skin. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a really, um, really nice block to do. Now, regarding the studies here, they haven't, there haven't been any studies that I saw of doing this for internal jugular lines. The only one that I saw was a small study of 27 patients looking at this for kind of painful conditions around the clavicle or the the shoulder area. And although there was no control group, it did show that this was feasible to do, and it did seem to have good pain relief in that group. So this is one of many areas where the setting is ripe for more research to show that maybe this is something that could actually help people. From here, we're going to shoot down to the brachial plexus. Let's start with interscaling, a crowd favorite. So the interscaling block, I think, scares people when they first hear about it because it is a dense uh, motor um, and sensory block of the upper extremity. In terms of sort of clinical uh, um, indications, uh, you can use this for shoulder dislocation. In fact, you could use like a really targeted C5, C6 injection with very low dose anesthetic um, for shoulder dislocation. And once you put in a shoulder with a motor block, you there's I mean it's it's like a mind blowing experience because there's no resistance. I mean, you typically lift the arm up and it goes back in. Sometimes it pops back in before you even get back in there. It does, and it's a, it's a, um, it's it's the bane of the resident because they they get the block in and then they don't even get to do the reduction because it self reduces. Can they still log those reductions in that case? <laughs> I think I think so. I think it can still count for their procedure logs. Um, the uh, we this was this was really a block we we uh, one of our first blocks in in the ED um, when we were first learning was we had a, an epidemic of. Um, subcutaneous and intramuscular uh, heroin use in Oakland, California. And we um, we were using these for deltoid abscesses very, very commonly. And you can use them for humerus fractures. You could use them for deltoid lacerations. Um, the, you will almost reliably, if not completely reliably, get a hemidiaphragmatic paresis um, from doing this. So um, this is another thing that tends to scare people away. But, you know, interscaling blocks are a an entry-level beginner block as far as uh, difficulty of blocks are concerned. And if you go to any of the anesthesia uh, resources or talk to an anesthesiologist, this is a very straightforward, simple block. Make sure you're, you got the right dose, but, um, and avoid, you know, things like the transverse cervical artery and just, you know, put color flow on and have good technique. Um, the, um, and then don't ever do them bilaterally because you're paralyzing the diaphragm um and i wouldn't do them in people who have like contralateral significant lung pathology or like a brittle copd patient on oxygen but um but a really high utility block i still use this block um relatively frequently for shoulder abscesses we still have a lot of those in my my current practice this is the first one where we actually have a good amount of studies about this. Most of the evidence centers around using this for shoulder dislocation. There's there's some case reports for those other uses you mentioned, but people are really excited about using this instead of procedural sedation for shoulder dislocations. So there's a couple studies we'll, we'll mention here, but one was an RCT that compared standard procedural sedation to interscaling blocks. And interestingly, it did show that there was a lower length of stay in the group that received the block, 
but there was not really any benefit on satisfaction or pain, which was kind of surprising. But I mean, maybe not if you consider that they're just unconscious or low-level consciousness. And there, it actually was a little bit worse for some of those outcomes, meaning that there was like a slightly higher pain scale in the block group. Now, that was just a single study. It was a pretty low N. But there was another similar study that uh, by Mike Blavis that compared uh, the same, did kind of the same thing and showed similar findings where it seems like it saves time at least, but as far as the other outcomes, somewhat equivocal. So here we have some evidence. Doesn't look like interscaling is definitively better than the standard, but I think intuitively, and people that have done this can usually attest to this, it's pretty easy to do and their patients can sometimes prefer it that you don't have to risk the side effects of procedural sedation and even as far as like nursing or workflow oftentimes avoiding procedural sedation means avoiding time that the nurse has to stand at the bedside you have thoughts on that mike yeah i think that if uh um i mean first and foremost i think just let's keep it real um like 90 percent of shoulder dislocations i think can be put in with like you know gentle verbal reassurance and some patience Right. I mean, you, you really like most of these can go in with whether you like Cunningham or you like t- different techniques um, to, to try. You know, most of my shoulder dislocations, I don't ever give any meds to um, the ones where you can't get them in because they're real big and muscular or they've been out for a while or whatever reason where you're otherwise going to go to procedural sedation. This is a great alternative. If it's real easy for you to set up procedural sedation and get it done in a hurry um, in your department resource wise and you like it, that's great. And if you've got people waiting for sedation beds, and people crowding up your hallways and you want to be able to just do something that's less provider time intensive, um, dropping in a block and going to see another patient and coming back and putting the arm in is, is a nice alternative to have. Um, the pain stuff doesn't really surprise me. I mean, you know, you're still sticking a needle into somebody's neck and injecting anesthetic, right? Even just the lidocaine itself, um, it burns in the skin when you do, um, any sort of regional technique. So, you know, compare that to an IV start on the patient side. That's what they're comparing, right? They're, they don't remember the reduction because they're either asleep or insensate, but they remember the block going in. So the discomfort might be a little bit higher. And perhaps there's a bias if you're using an agent with amnestic properties that would uh, make the scale questionable. Okay, moving down, infraclavicular block. And this I like to tell residents is kind of a riskier one. You just got to be careful and and know what to avoid here. Yeah, so we can probably clump like supraclavicular and infraclavicular together. Um, They basically do the same thing. They're just different approaches to the brachial plexus right around the clavicle. Um, So you'll get the same level of anesthesia, um, which is a really dense block to the entire upper extremity. So you you may not get the very top of the shoulder, um, but you'll get really very proximal humerus all the way at the fingertips, and it's complete. Um, The the interscaling block doesn't get you the sort of ulnar aspect of the arm because it doesn't get C8-T1. So, you know, for things like wrists and, and stuff distal to the elbow, it's an, it's an incomplete block as compared to supra and infraclavicular, which is really just the whole arm is done. You know, there's consequences with these blocks. These, these have things like, like lung and, and, and subclavian artery and things in the way. So I would definitely say these are blocks that need to be done with an in-plane needle approach so that you're tracking the tip the whole way. Um, and at the same time, they're fantastic rescue blocks. That's how I use these for the most part is I, you know, 
elbow dislocation that fails intraarticular, um, I might use one of these blocks. Um, the reality is that if you've got someone with like a comminuted both bone forearm who you think is going to go to the operating room, um, those are high risk compartment syndrome injuries. And I'm not a huge fan of using it for that. Um, I have used both axillary and infraclavicular blocks for um, distal radius fractures uh, in certain populations as well. So I, I find uses for these, I would say, of the brachial plexus blocks, I do more interscaling these days than, than mostly anything else. You've talked about using them for like a blocks for a deltoid abscess. Do you ever use a, a supraclavicular for, for that? You absolutely could. Yep. It, it'll, it'll typically get you enough for a deltoid abscess. Now, as far as evidence for these, when we're looking at the supraclavicular, there was a small study which really toes the line between study and case series, because I think there was about 12 patients here, but it actually compared getting a supraclavicular block to procedural sedation, and similar to the uh, interscaling literature, it shows that it does save time and is feasible to do there. Regarding infraclavicular, we're just looking at a few scattered cases for the different uses of that block. Well, all right. I think we're going to pump the brakes there for a second. That was a lot to take in. We covered a lot of ground, but there is still a lot more to come. We are being thorough here. And so we've broken this podcast into two parts. The next half is going to be available in a couple of weeks. However, for those of you that are itching to get digging into this evidence further, we are going to have a combined blog post for this episode, which will feature all of the references that we discussed, as well as some very helpful resources for anybody interested in getting started or furthering their skill set in regional anesthesia. So make sure you check that out. Until then, farewell, and we'll talk to you later. More chick pressure, more gel, more chick pressure, more gel, more chick pressure, more gel. That's a good one.